You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 29, the first episode of the new year. And I want to wish all of you a safe and healthy 2021. And I hope that we all have a better year this year. So uh, well, let's make it so. Now, I usually make up some notes to follow along when I record these intros and outros. And I got to say that, boy, this was one tough week to focus and concentrate on that kind of work. Uh, but I sure hope the show provides some diversion from the real world, if only for a couple hours. But it is good to be back and talking with all of you after a short but fairly productive hiatus over the holidays. I recorded a number of shows and I have some more interviews scheduled over the next few weeks. So we're going to keep things rolling right along into spring. And now it's time to highlight new So Much Pingle Patreon supporters. I want to give a shout out to Josh Ems, Matt Cage, Patrick Connolly, Chris McMartin, and last but not least, Justin Eldon and the fine folks over at the Highlands and Islands Conservatory. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. As you know, I really appreciate it, and you make a real difference. And folks, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling along, please go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. Now, before we get to our guest, I want to mention an awesome email that I got this week from... Patrick Connolly, and I hope you, I'm pronouncing your name right. Now, Patrick has two young sons, Ian, who is 11, and Spencer, who is 10, and they live up in the Chicago area. And uh, now Patrick says he's been a wildlife photographer for a long time, and he was looking for some nature activities that he and his boys could do together. And guess what? They chose field herping. Patrick says their first find was a brown snake, Steraria decayi, yes. And he says that was all it took to get Ian and Spencer hooked. Now, that makes me very happy because the brown snake was my very first snake as well. You know, way back when in the last century. Uh, back when we called them decay snakes. And really, that's all it took for me too. So, very cool. So, thanks for making my day, Patrick. And hopefully, I'll have a chance to meet you and Ian and Spencer in the field someday. We'll see. But uh, let's get to this week's guest. Now, Jeff really is a renaissance man of sorts, and folks, an hour and 45 minutes is hardly enough to cover all of the species he's worked with, his research and conservation projects, and the many adventures he's had all over the planet. But we gave it a shot, and I think you will enjoy my talk with SoCal's own Jeff Lem. Well, hello, everyone. This evening, I'm talking with Jeff Lem. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Mike. How are you? Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, been on my ask list for quite a while. And uh, since I started making an ask list for the show, I have to say ask list because some people hear the wrong word there. And you're not on that <laughs> list. So <laughs> That's good. That's good to know. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. You're welcome. 
So I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you. And uh, I feel like there's so much that we can talk about. First of all, you're out in the uh, Southern California. Uh, you live with your, your wife and your family out there. And uh, you've been, you're a zoo-based researcher, Correct. author, field herper, uh, all kinds of stuff. Fisherman. Uh, right. You're just a jack of all trades. <laughs> Renaissance man is the term. Oh, I like Renaissance. Yes. Yeah. All yes. right. Yeah. <laughs> Renaissance man. Okay. <laughs> you and Leonardo. <laughs> awesome. I'm gonna. I'm not sure where we're gonna jump in here and start with first, but uh, I think um, one one of the things that uh, that interests me about what you you've been doing is your. Uh, Research with the uh, the rock iguanas, the cyclura, I assume yes. they're called rock iguanas. Yes, correct? yes, West yeah. Indian rock iguanas. West Indian rock iguanas. So, correct. I thought that might be a good place to jump in and get started. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with that? Sure. Yeah. So, rock iguanas was kind of um, where it started in my research world. I guess you can say we started in Cuba with the Cuban rock iguana. Um, and, and when I say back then, you know, we're talking almost 30 years ago. So rock iguanas, we knew were declining as a group. Um, there's about, with subspecies, there's between 14 and 16 or so, depending on who you talk to, but eight species. Um, and all have been declining for, for many years now. Um, the Cuban's the most stable. Um, so we kind of wanted to use the Cuban as a model um, for head starting. So you've heard it with sea turtles um, and several other things. So basically head starting is uh, when there's unnatural predators introduce species and, and the babies just aren't growing up. They're getting eaten. Um, so nothing's grown up to breed. And with rock iguanas, you know, that's a big problem. These things are lived to 50, 60, 70 years old. So if nothing's breeding, you're just going to have this old population and nothing's going to happen. So we wanted to see if head starting and release would work. Um, so in Cuba, that was one of the main goals. Uh, we took a whole bunch of babies from nests, from eggs we hatched from wild females. Uh, we grew them two to three years of age. Um, and we compared with the head started with freshly hatched ones and we released them, marked them. All this work was on, by the way, this was at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. Uh, since at the time we couldn't really go to Cuba, still kind of can't. And so, yeah, it was a great place to work. Uh, we figured out that head starting does indeed work quite well with rock iguanas. The babies do just fine in the wild when you put them back after they've been in, in a XC2 population. Um, so, yeah, so all of that work kind of transformed into other countries uh, with more critically endangered species. Uh, so we're not doing all of it, but our colleagues are doing quite a bit of it. Grand Cayman. Um, you know, Anagata, Jamaica has been a huge success with the Jamaican iguana, which was thought to be extinct for about 40, 50 years. So that, that program's going quite well. And so, yeah, it all kind of started there. And uh, we've done a lot of research projects and a lot of other conservation programs, moving iguanas from islands that, you know, have invasives to islands that didn't have invasives, seeing how that went. And they did just great. So, yeah, a lot of really hmm. cool conservation work. With reptiles, you know, they're pretty much hardwired. You don't have to teach them to do anything. So, like, when you when you do a program like that with a mammal or something, especially like a big cat, yeah, I mean, they have to be taught how to hunt, everything. With herps, 
stick them out there and they do pretty much just fine on their own as as we've seen with burmese pythons and yeah. things like that so you didn't have to dress up in a, a rock iguana suit <laughs> to feed my babies <laughs> no nothing like that i have worked with condors so i know exactly what you're talking about or at least there's no photos of you doing that right? no there's there's <laughs> A lot of different photos out there, but I don't think that one's there. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Uh, how long did you head start the baby, like for the Cuban rock iguanas? How long did, what was the head start? What it went At what age did you release them? Yeah, so for Cubans, we started at about two years. And oh. it seemed to work quite well for them. Cubans grow pretty quick, whereas with Anagata iguanas, uh, I think the head starting is like three to five years because they grow a little slower. I see. So yeah, it's a lot of work, and you know, and the there's Head Start facilities on island with these a lot of these critically endangered ones. They're they're just raised on, in the country they live in, so it's a lot easier there. And that way, you get the locals involved, and the locals are actually kind of take everything over, and and they're working with their own species, and you you build that pride in yeah. the local people for their own species because without that you you have nothing in conservation you need the local people on board yeah i mean that's that's the common theme for for conservation right is yes buy, buy in from the locals and uh, employment and right everything getting them some work to, to help out with the project and exactly yeah you know, you, well, getting you, to get some kids involved and yeah and so you know we we write in a lot of education components in the beginning of any project and we keep it going for a very long time. And then the locals just get on board and everything goes great. Most of the time. Let me ask you this. Um, uh, it occurs to me that, you know, you're doing this work to get these animals over the predator hump, so to speak. Of course, pred the predation issue is uh, an issue because of loss of habitat and invasive species like rats and things like that. But, uh, is there any mitigation, predator mitigation work that accompanies this? There is. Uh, we don't do that ourselves. Uh, we work with uh, other groups that do that, uh, such as island conservation. Um, and it depends where. You know, if you have a massive island that's, you know, hundreds of miles, it's almost impossible to do. Like in Jamaica, it's very difficult. Uh, the mongoose is the problem in Jamaica. Um, so uh -huh. they've they've trapped them out. That's part of the program with our colleagues in Jamaica is they do trap the mongoose, but they can only trap in the core iguana habitat areas um, and just try and keep it controlled. You'll never eradicate the mongoose. You just got to try and control them. Whereas on smaller islands, uh, they've been able to eradicate everything down to mice. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's the thing with head starting. It's a stopgap measure. I mean, you it, it works, um, but you obviously want to try and get rid of those invasive predators. Okay. Well, cool. Sounds like there's some success with the smaller species that live on smaller islands. And yeah. I guess those smaller islands serve as, as uh, you know, genetic reserves. Uh, sure. You got to keep those. They're just as important as the larger populations on larger islands, right? Very much so. And uh, I mean, it, it even works on larger islands, the controlled predator trapping, um, even if you can't eradicate them, it does work. And animals are getting up to age and breeding and doing everything they're supposed to be. So yeah, it's it's been successful all around, I'd say. And in terms of the, um, uh, how many young do they uh, offspring do they produce? Uh, they're egg layers. So how, what's a, a clutch a clutch size for a rock iguana? 
a very large clutch for a rock iguana. Uh, the larger species like Cubans and Grand Caymans and, uh, you know, larger species in general, rhino iguanas, they can lay upwards of around 20 eggs. Smaller females lay smaller clutches. Um, you'll see anywhere, I'd say an average for a large species is about 8 to 10, somewhere in there. Uh, whereas a smaller species such as, you know, the Turks and Caicos iguana, which is the smallest of the rock iguanas, they lay anywhere from like two to ten or so, with an average of maybe four or five. Not not massive clutches. Yeah, yeah, but not not onesies and twosies like some turtles. No, no, it's typically it's typically more than two. First year females often lay two to three eggs. Okay, very good. And uh, it's kind of a cliche, but you literally wrote the book on uh, rock iguanas. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, that book. The Rock Iguana book is is kind of the first book available for, you know, not just researchers and not just biologists. It, it's, you know, people who just like rock iguanas. And, you know, all the work in there has been done by my colleagues and everybody at the IUCN Iguana Specialist Group. I was mm-hmm. basically compiling everybody's work into a book with nice photos. And then I also added husbandry because I ran the Rock Iguana breeding program uh, here at our zoo for 27 years or so. So just put in some of the experience I had and, and a lot of pretty pictures and conservation and natural mm-hmm. history and just kind of everything rock iguana kind of needed to be done, get some more education out there. Um, so yeah, it worked out. <laughs> kind of the, uh, uh, it's not just for, um, people that are interested. It's kind of a playbook for anyone else that's right. going to come behind you and do some work. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of cool stuff. Kind of get the general knowledge out there and then some more husbandry stuff. So did it take you a long time to put all this knowledge and and information together with all all your sources? No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good scientific papers out there from colleagues and friends of mine. So uh, it wasn't too difficult. It's keeping up with the conservation because there's so many programs now. Uh, So even that book, you know, a lot of the newer stuff isn't in there. Um, but writing wise, you know, that book was with Allison Alberts. Um, we, uh-huh. we, we busted that one out in a couple of years, pretty quick, not too bad. The photos of course took a lot longer than that. Uh, just getting to some of those islands is tough. And I did use some photos from friends. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't too bad a project. It, you know, with only eight species and 14 or 15 taxa, uh, it wasn't too bad, pretty quick. But do you, uh. And also, it's sort of a side benefit. You got to visit a lot of cool places, too. Yes, yes. That's, uh, you know, we didn't just go on photo trips uh, for the the book. It was, you know, based on research and then uh, our iguana specialist group meetings in a different place every year. So that's helped me see a lot of really cool places. Um, And then I did go to a couple places on my own, but uh, most of it was through work stuff. So, yeah, it's cool. Works out. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, for example, the, the Cuban iguana thing, you started out, you get to, uh, you're kind of restricted to Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in subsequent years, you're able to come back and and uh, see the rest of the island. And uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, we were pretty much restricted to the base during our research. Uh, the base is about 20 square miles, including the bay. Uh, there's a lot of herps there. There's including sea turtles. There's around 30 species there. 
So, you know, when I first started, I was like 20 years old. I was this little herper kid just stoked to be <laughs> on this island. So I was herping my butt off. You know, we'd do our research and our field work, and I'd take off and go road cruising, catching Cuban boas and, you know, dwarf boas and cool geckos and all kinds of awesome stuff. And I, I remember just always looking over that fence up in the mountains, John. Oh, man, I want to go there so bad. And it took about... 10 years and then we actually had our iguana specialist group meeting in havana and i i met my friend luis diaz from the uh, uh the national museum of natural history he's the herpetologist there he's the herp curator mm -hmm. and we got to herp together and you know i'm seeing stuff i just dreamed about and i just was so happy and and then we had another meeting there just a couple years ago and we talked more and he said, man, we got to start doing some herp trips. And I said, I would absolutely love that. I just don't know how I can do that as an American. And then things kind of opened up a little under Obama. And I actually led some trips uh, through another group. And then I was finally able to just dial it in with Luis. And we led our first trip, I think, three years ago. And it just went so well, and everybody had so much fun. The Cubans are just the greatest people, and there's so many animals to see if you're out in the bush and, and the food. That was the only complaint, actually, is too much food. But we actually <laughs> got that complaint, and it's true because, you know, these are Latin Americans. They want to give you their best, and so you'd sit down, and the plates just keep coming, just everything you can imagine, just so good. So, you know, once word got out that we're able to do these trips legally, we have a State Department permit to do this, then people started getting on board. And uh, we started doing two trips a year. Um, and then, of course, this year we got shut down completely. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we have people raring to go, and hopefully next year we start up again. Now, the, uh, when you're talking about State Department permit, mm -hmm. were, you, were you able to go under a scientific uh visa or a cultural visa or no that was how we did the first ones but um nowadays we're actually able to do it through citizen science um and we on our second trip we actually got a new publication on a critically endangered zapata toad we got a new locale for it um and everybody who was on the trip was an author on the paper um Very good. so yeah it's really cool so we're able to work that link into it and uh, we we do really try to do some science there. Um, you know, we've had a lot of different ideas, you know, even coming down to taking, you know, notes on the different anoles. In some areas, you know, you have 13 species of anoles in, in one yeah. place. And so it's just cool to see how they're using different areas and the different temperatures, uh, each, you know, an arboreal anole versus a ground-dwelling anole versus a water anole, and just the different things we're doing. So, it gives our guests who are primarily herpers a chance to get out and, you know, see what they can do. It's fun. Yeah. Well, I, it's always struck by comparing the landmass size of Cuba to say like Florida right. and then comparing the, the number of anole species. Yeah. Uh, you know, clearly the, the anoles have drawn well in their adaptive yeah. radiation. On <laughs> Cuba. Yeah. It's, uh, it's mind blowing how many different anole species we see. Yeah. They they seem to move. They're like you say. They're you know, aquatic anoles and mm -hmm. um, look at uh, have uh, Jonathan Losos uh, anole book and have all these different uh, uh, 
what do you want to call it? Habitat niches of yeah. anoles have, you know, the upper canopy right. and the trunk anoles and the ground anoles and the twig anoles. It's just, yeah. it's just quite fascinating. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And at night, you know, which is when we do a lot of our herping, you know, it's tropical. So you want to go out at night so you aren't sweating to death during the day. <laughs> and that's when you're seeing a lot of stuff and these anoles are just out sleeping. And, and, you know, of course you've got the chameleon anoles as well. Uh, what used to be called chameleolus. Uh, they're back in a nolus now. Uh, but we yeah. typically see two to three species on our trips. And it's just unbelievable. You're just walking through that forest and you, you shine one of those things and they just glow. And they're, you know, you get chameleonides, the big ones, and they're just yeah. absolutely huge and weird, funky, crazy things. Everybody always gets a kick out of them. I think they're snail crunchers, aren't they? They certainly are. And knuckle crunchers as well. <laughs> well they look like a pair of vice grips kind of anyway. oh they are and so are the any of the giant anoles we typically see uh i'd say two to four tacks on our trips of, of the giant anoles and oh they hurt if they get a hold of you it is so incredibly painful mm -mm. actually that's one of the worst lizard bites i've ever had is from anola oh, really? anola smallwood eye man i almost passed out from that thing I wow. apparently i turned white and was sweating he he got me really good on the hand and got, you know, the flesh away from the bone. So he just was pinching oh. his teeth. You could hear his teeth grinding together through my flesh. And I, oh. yeah, I almost dropped on that one. And that, oh, that one, a good bloody mess. So I kind of steer clear of those big giant heads of theirs <laughs> now. <laughs> but uh, All right. you can see how they can take, you know, warblers and hummingbirds and other lizards. And they eat absolutely everything. Anything they can fit in their mouth. Pretty much. And it's a massive wow. mouth compared to their body. Their head is just enormous compared to their body. So they can you know, fit. They're like a bullfrog. They can fit anything in there. Wow. Impressive. I, I still stuck with his image of this lizard uh, <laughs> munching on a warbler or a, yeah. or a hummingbird. Seen, you see, a lot of the people in Guantanamo Bay you know we used to do herp shows we'd go catch all these different reptiles and we uh, we knew they knew us as the iguana team but you know we'd we'd find other herps and uh we'd do kind of these reptile shows and teach them about the native species on the base and oh yeah that's that giant one that sits on my that sits on my window and waits for the hummingbirds and jumps at them and i said are you what? serious and and then you start hearing it more and more often and you know because these giant anoles will come down during the heat of the day and they'll sit in the shade and they sit on people's window screens and they, people say, oh, yeah, we watch them out of the kitchen. When the hummingbirds try and get the flowers on the bushes, he jumps at them and tries to get them. And wow. Said, yeah. And you hear it, it's very common. You hear people talking about it quite a bit. Awesome. I want to yeah, see that. Yeah, I'd like that. to see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen that. I've seen them eat other lizards, but uh, uh, I have not seen one get a, a bird yet. Wow. When 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 you went to when on your trips to Cuba, do you cover part of the island or we cover almost we go to we go between four and six areas. Um and we typically go to the western half of Cuba because the eastern half there's almost no infrastructure. So it's yeah. very it's very difficult to travel and have a place to stay. Um we're talking about planning one. Uh Luis has some spots, so hopefully in the next year or two we'll be traveling to eastern cuba as well but right now there's so much in the west uh, i mean we yeah. go all the way out to the western peninsula a place called guanajacabibes uh, always fun word yeah. to say 
And I love it. So we can dive and fish, and there's boas, and that's the probably the best place in the West to see Cuban iguanas. So we see quite a few Cubans while we're there. Uh, we go to Vinales. We go, um, oh, geez, I can't even remember all the different places. Um, my mind's thinking of Australia for some reason. But yeah, we typically, Vinales is always a, a big one because that's, you know, you get the big limestone magotes, these little mountain things mm-hmm. called magotes. And it's just beautiful. The Vinales Valley is just insane, amazing place. So we spend time there. Full full disclosure, I, I I myself went to Cuba last year. I know you did. That's I awesome. did not go. I did not go with your group, so maybe I can mm-hmm. correct that in the future. Sure. But uh, I I also went to a couple of those places, like you know, Wanahaka Bay Base. Mm-hmm. It is fun to say. It is. Uh, and Vinales and places like that. And mm-hmm. so uh, you're talking about. It, I'm having some flashbacks here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're right. There's just many 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 great places to to go in the western part of the island things to right. see but i imagine there's also other species on the eastern side that uh you can't maybe you can't get on the in the western half of cuba yes very much so um that's where the galley wasp is that's where uh, um there's quite a few things in the east a lot of different anoles uh more tropidophis you know i think we're up to what, about 17 species of of dwarf boas now. I think Louise, Louise just described another one. Um, and that was more Eastern. Um, but like places, I don't know if you went to Saroa, but we see a yes. lot of, we see a lot of tropidophis when we're in Saroa. Um, and then we go down to Zapata swamp as well. Um, crocs is, I get this question, so I'm just going to say it now. Cuban crocs are almost impossible to see. We do go yes. to the, we do go to the croc farm that does the conservation work, and everybody gets to see uh-huh. them and play with babies, and you know get their picture taken. And every now and then there'll be a wild one hanging out near there in the breeding season. Oh. Um, so we have seen little ones there. Um, we do see acutus though, the American crocs. Uh, uh-huh. There's areas we we do see those down in Zapata Swamp. Um, but you know everybody's just happy to be there basically because it's such a fun place as i'm sure you learned yeah uh, a couple things that struck me about cuba uh one of which uh you've already mentioned the food was uh, absolutely amazing and the the cuban people are very warm and friendly very much it's a it's a definitely a uh, great place to be a great they have a great outlook on tourists and Visitors are very warm right. and welcoming, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I just enjoyed the heck out of the uh, of my experiences there. Not just the herping, but the, the whole package. It was just an amazing place to go. That's that's the beauty of it. The culture and the history is just unbelievable. So on our trips, um, we actually bring a historian with us as well, because you know that's a long drive to Guanahaca Bay, based from Havana, and in between. And uh, the Lissandra is, is who we usually bring in. She is just a fountain of knowledge. You could look at any one of the, you know, you see a lot of statues and a lot of memorials and a lot of war things. And I mean, you could point at any statue and she will tell you the entire story of what it means. And while we're just driving along, it's so awesome. I learn so much every time I go. And we do do a, a Havana day tour and uh, mm-hmm. go to old Havana and, you know, we go to the museum and um, there's just so much to see and learn and the old fort and just awesome, amazing place. 
Yeah. Plus, you got to get your curly tails there at, at the fort. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have a historian, but we did. We we were there under a cultural visa, so we we had a tour guide. We were there with a tour company. Nice. Uh, and uh, that and that was good. We we got some 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 of that stuff, but probably not at the same depth as having an actual historian with you. Be, I always I always joke about traveling anywhere I go in the world. It's like I want to bring a historian, <laughs> and I want to bring a, a geologist right. and a botanist with me, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll we'll fill in the rest ourselves. But right. Uh, well, that's the beauty of Louise. Luis yeah. isn't just a herpetologist. He's like a top-notch birder. He's like the go-to guy for birding in, in Cuba. Everybody wants oh, Luis cool. as their guide. But he knows just everything about everything. Uh, bugs mm-hmm. and the scorpions and the tarantulas we see and uh, a lot of the plants. So, yeah, he is a fountain of knowledge, and he's absolutely wonderful to be doing this with. We did have a, a herpetologist with us Uh I don't know if you know him, Tomas Cabrera. Uh-huh. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, he, he came with us. Uh, very uh, intelligent fellow. Mm-hmm. Very friendly. Uh, we enjoyed his company. I call him a friend now. Excellent. Uh, but uh, the birding there is also oh, yeah. uh, very good. Oh, yeah. It's it's top-notch. I mean, I've never been a big birder. I appreciate birds. I, I like birds, especially raptors. But, I mean, the little stuff I can't tell one from the other ever i'm terrible at identifying it so it's great to have Luis there because he'll just he'll stop and he'll be like oh did you hear that oh yeah what's that that's the you know yellow necked you know whatever whatever i said oh okay where is it can i get a picture of it he goes oh maybe maybe not yeah <laughs> but yeah he's one of those guys who you get him in the field and he tells you what everything is and i love it it just helps me you know yeah, I got to see the um, the bee hummingbird, the smallest uh-huh. bird on the planet. Yeah, that was uh, Super that was cool. a yeah, and they're more common than you would expect. Yeah, and who couldn't appreciate that? Oh yeah, yeah. I finally yeah. got some really good photos. I think last year, and uh, yeah, they're so tiny and just so cool. But they're common. I mean, we see them in a lot of places. Now, when you continue to pick this back up, you're you're expecting to do more research and. Uh, you know, you're kind of doing some herp surveys while you're work while you're doing these tours, I guess. Then, yeah, you know, not a whole lot. Uh, my Caribbean work, um, I was doing like three projects on three three islands all at the same time. It was getting to be a whole lot, and then my first child was born, and I kind of pulled back a little bit, and then when the other two were born, it was just next to impossible. Um, you know, cause I mean, I used to be gone six, eight months a year and that just doesn't work well. <laughs> One with a wife, two, when you have three little ones. Um, so I pulled back, but you know, I've always done herp work here in Southern California. Um, mm-hmm. I've always had my, not only just herping, but I've done a lot of projects here in SoCal too. So it's kind of good to take a break from the Caribbean, everybody's going to say, Oh, you poor baby, you had to work, you know, (laughs) on all these wonderful islands. But after 20 years, I mean, it takes a toll. Um, So I came back and I started doing a lot more here and a lot of in-house research with the rock iguanas here and the breeding and conservation work. But I mean, you know, I always, I always had more I wanted to do down here and it it, it kind of morphed into that. I still go to the islands uh, occasionally not just doing my own Cuba herp tour stuff, but, you know, for work and with rock iguanas. But 
a lot of my work now is focused here on our native herbs. And that's almost most of what I do these days. And I, I love it. I love every minute of it. Well, I should be, this is a good time to mention that you, you have a great little field guide that you, mm. you authored. Title is the, uh, it's a field guide to the amphibians and reptiles of the San Diego County, correct? Correct. San Diego region. Yes. San Diego region. Yes. Yes. yes because obviously they don't just stop in San Diego County. <laughs> they, they go yeah. out a ways. So yeah, we decided yeah. with region. Um, yeah, that was just something I always wanted to do as a San Diego herper who'd grown up here, born here. I'd seen everything in this County by the time I was in high school. And, you know, there was just no info on it. There's, of course, Lawrence Clover and the San Diego Zoo. And, you know, there's a lot of papers. There's mm -hmm. a lot of scientific work, but there was just no, you know, general books, no field guides, no nothing. It was Stebbins Western Guide, which was amazing as a kid. But, you know, there was nothing just for San Diego. And, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, things started getting very regional with science. And, uh, you know, the Natural History Museum here put out the San Diego Bird Atlas, which is just an amazing book. It's, you know, we, have, we get roughly 500 species through San Diego a year, more than that now, I think. And oh, so really? Made, wow. Oh, yeah, we have tons. Um, and then, you know, this massive plant guide came out. And I had heard one that was being done on mammals that my friend Scott actually put out just a couple of years ago, which is a huge mammal guide to San Diego. And I was like, man, San Diego needs a hurt book. And I had all the photos. You know, I've been a photographer for years. I had photos of everything. Uh, well, not everything, because there are those two weird snakes that may or may not be here. And, you know, yellow-bellied <laughs> sea snake, which I probably will never see, which occasionally shows up. Yeah, so, I mean, I had all the photos of the herps from San Diego because I'd grown up here. I'd seen everything. And I just said, you know, San Diego needs like a really cool little field guide. So I did a lot of research. I looked up all the scientific papers. I talked to everybody I knew. And I just kind of started piecing it all together, kind of in a Stebbinsy way, but but with more. I, I wanted more. I wanted big species accounts. So, and then I'd throw in stuff that I'd seen in the field and, you know, uh, my problem was I wanted too many photos. <laughs> oh. So, uh, but yeah, it took me about, oh, geez, probably three or four years to write all that. And, uh, and I didn't have a publisher or anything. I just started writing. And I was like, I wonder who would publish this. And I remember Harry Green talking to me about his snake book and how he did really well. He liked UC Press and everything. So I just called him one day. And I was like, hey, would you guys be interested in like a field guide to just San Diego? It's like 400 pages, but it's got a lot of pretty pictures. And they're like, yeah, send it in. And I mean, it was just like pure luck. I sent it in. They're like, yeah, we'll take it. Like, you got to awesome. be kidding me. That was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and uh, That's awesome. And so they took it. It came out in 2006. And then um, genetics became very strong in the mid 2000s so almost all my herp names are wrong in the book now <laughs> so oh, i guess i gotta yeah. revise that bad boy oh. uh but which you know you always have to kind of revise a field guide so i mean i've been asked recently if if i want to do it and not by uc press but some other folks so i mean 
I've talked about it. It needs revision. And I think it's kind of important for down here in a, in an mm-hmm. area such as San Diego, which, you know, is a, uh, a hot spot. It's a biodiversity hot spot, and we have a lot of threatened and endangered species. So, yeah, you'll probably see that in the next, how old am I? Uh, <laughs> 10, 15, 20 years? I don't know. Uh, I'll get oh. to it eventually. <laughs> well, number one. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Uh, number one, I, I I just appreciate that you uh, you saw this niche, just this empty, this hole that needed to be filled. Right. And you went ahead and did it. Uh, but I know writing field guides is not, <laughs> it's not like I shall sit down and write a field guide. And, you know, yeah. a month later, you you put down your pen and it's done. It's a lot, Dude. a lot, a lot of work involved. It is ridiculous amounts of work just i mean one species account just takes forever Ugh. and when yeah. you're trying to look up all the scientific stuff as well you know back when i wrote it it wasn't easy to just go on google scholar and find a pdf of a paper i mean you had to go to the library and you had to ask people for copies paper copies what is that yeah. <sighs> yeah. It, was a, it was kind of a whole different ball game so maybe this time it'll be easier yeah. i don't know it's, it's never <laughs> easy. maybe i'll make my son do it <laughs> yeah i don't know what you had kids for but yeah, that's right maddie's a herp guy I mean, yeah just send him in yeah, yeah, yeah. one of these days i will say that you know i don't have to scan slides for this one i've gone back oh, and found everything yeah. again and did it did it all in digital and i'm happy with a lot of it so and it'll just give me an excuse to hurt more yeah it's a win-win that is it's always fun <laughs> It's a great little field guide too. Uh, Thank you, I appreciate that. I have to think it for a moment too. Um, when I look at it, it's like this is a field guide for a region. But if you took this region from California and superimposed it over New England, we're talking about a pretty big area. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not small by any means. Yeah. And I mean, there's, uh, I think last count, I think uh, eighty five, eighty six taxa. There's a couple. Ugh. A couple in there that might be new. Uh, I did leave out one, kind of on purpose. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, Sonora. Yeah. You know, Sonora semi-annulata. There's one record, and there's actually a specimen at the museum. But um, at the time, I didn't know they had a specimen. Oh um, wow! I didn't even learn that until about ten years ago. So I was like, damn it. There's another thing I got to add. <laughs> and, and these little <laughs> things just add up. They're all you know ingrained in my memory. Okay. Do more with Palamas. Go get a shot of the Sonora from the museum. You know, change all the scientific names. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, just, yeah, lots to do. Lots to do. Maybe some uh, range extensions for some things. Mm-hmm. Plenty. Plenty of range extensions. Uh, yeah, a lot. Well, you have uh, you have this very unique habitat out there, too. What do you call it? Coastal sage habitat. Yes, coastal uh, sage scrub. Mm-hmm. coastal skate sage scrub and and you've done some work with with that particular habitat and uh, talk a, l- a little bit about that yeah a lot of my uh, research has been in coastal sage because uh it's an endangered habitat it's more than 85 percent gone because it's prime for building and you know coastal california it, it isn't just san diego it goes down into baja it goes up up to you know central northern cal even in some areas has fairly similar um, it's a little different than the chaparral. It's a lower, scrubbier stuff. 
but there's a lot of species that, that really use it. And it's typically the more threatened species or what nowadays are here, they call them species of special concern, like red diamond rattlesnake, rosy boa. Mm -hmm. You know, those are all coastal sage scrub denizens. And that's why when, uh, for example, here's, here's an easy way to put it. You get herpers, and I've been seeing this a lot lately, like, oh, these red diamond rattlesnakes, they're calling them endangered. That's the most common snake I see. And I said, one, they're not endangered. They are protected from take, finally. In 2016, that happened. But they're yeah. a species of special concern, and that just means we're keeping an eye on them. They're not endangered. I also want people to know that red diamond rattlesnakes have a small range in the U.S., and that's why we want to protect them, and that is a good thing. So people, please don't handle them. Leave them alone. Don't kill them. Um, so that's obviously a species that is very dear to my heart. Um, I radio tracked them, oh, geez, 20 years ago for about four years along with rosy boas. Um, and even when I was working on them, it was like, there's just so much more I need to learn about these that this radio tracking isn't teaching me. So right now I'm looking at their den ecology, which is quite different than other rattlesnakes. The babies don't go to the dens. They don't overwinter with the adults. Um, and when we say den, we're talking, you know, two to three animals in a in an overwintering site that come and go throughout the winter that will feed during the winter. They use the same spot every year, though. I mean, I've had I have animals that I radio tracked as adults 20 years ago that I'm finding in the same spots. Wow. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, it's not the you know fifty snakes piling out of a den in the spring. It's two or three mm -hmm. here, two or three here. Uh, the most I've seen is about nine in one den, but that's really rare. Um, so I'm kind of there's a recipe for the dens, the actual dens that they use. There is a recipe that they really like that I'm trying to get quantitative data on. I see. Um, so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's fun. We're going to try and uh, put uh, RFID pit tag readers in the field so we can see how often they're coming and going in the winter. Mm -hmm. Because they, I mean, last week I had empty dents. You know, we hit 75 degrees and nobody's anywhere. So they're moving. I've seen middle of winter feeding in all our snake species about a zillion times. So yeah. I'm kind of looking into that. Um, I do a lot with board lines because it's an easy way to uh, to census the species over time. Um, and it's not a lot of work and it's not very expensive and it's fun. Uh, so I have a big paper coming out hopefully very soon. It, it's been accepted with revisions, but you know it was sixty pages on on board lines and herbs oh, wow. and, herbs and small mammals. I'm revising that now, so um, but it's kind of, it's mostly coastal sage, but compared to some of the grassland habitats that I work in as well, and kind of why boards work. Uh, you see boards work, and you know these are the species we found, but you never see why they work because it's different everywhere. Even in Southern California, mm -hmm. boards really don't work in the desert, but here they work. But if you look, you know, back where you are, they work, but at a different time of year, and it has been its different reasons. Yeah. Here, it's mo mostly about moisture. We live in a desert, and so it's all about conserving moisture. Whereas back your way, you know, it's getting out of moisture quite a bit. <laughs> so it's yeah. a lot of different things, and uh, we did a model looking at like 15 different factors, and I had a lot of data. I had, uh, I think, 
1,700 captures of 35 species over four years. Wow. So, so yeah, it's really cool. And I was looking at, you know, were there burrows under the board? What are the temperatures? How much sun is on the board? How much vegetation? What kind of vegetation? Yeah, a number of different things. So I've been killing myself on this paper for several years now. And, <laughs> and I'm still, you know, I'm still doing board lines, looking at several other things now that I noticed while I was doing the first project, like, why is it when gophers suddenly appear, I never see anything and you know, stuff like that. So ah. it's fun. Keeps me going. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, was out there. I can't remember what the year I was out there. Um, uh, actually I've been out there twice, uh, and, uh, got to hang out with you a little bit while you took some data mm-hmm. on some of your research boards. And, uh, right. it was all very, very fascinating and interesting to me. And of course, that was my first visit to the region. So there's all these cool snakes that I had never seen before, including, you know, common things like uh, Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. And uh, so it was very exciting, but uh, so I'm glad to hear that you're, you're able to wrap this up and, and get something published on this. And yeah. Yeah. There, there could, there should be several papers on that project. We shall see puppy. Oh. Sorry. If you hear my dog yeah, whining. He's like, I just want to go outside. I can't reach, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I was thinking about that the other day when you guys came out and uh, you found a red diamond rattler. We did. Yeah. Yeah. I think, was it you or were you with the person? I remember coming around to Ben and I heard you guys say, oh, I see. Yeah, I, I can't remember who I was with, but yeah, we encountered it out in the open. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and interesting. That was, uh, that was my first. Oh, oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, it was my first red diamond. And, uh, nice. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful speech. Man, they remain one of my favorite rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. They're brawny. Mm-hmm. They're gorgeous. They're just, a, they're just a charismatic animal. They are, and they're calm. You know, I mean, one out of ten is a little psycho, but for the most part, I mean, they are just the most mellow snake alive. And I mean, that's probably why some people get bit by them <laughs> because, uh, you know, they just don't rattle at you like a Southern Pacific. And, and that was the scariest part about radio track and red diamonds. You're like, okay, signal says, you know, we're within, you know, a couple of yards and every day I'm almost standing on a red diamond. They don't buzz at you. They don't strike at you. I mean, it happens occasionally, but for the most part, they they just want to hide and not, mm-hmm. not be seen. So yeah. they, they're, they're, they, they, in the wintertime, they don't really hibernate really. They just sort of hunker down. Right. right. They just, right. No, yeah. Nothing here truly hibernates. I mean, I have, I have good days in December. Uh, my best month is probably February on the boards. Um, it's just, they're doing different things at different time of year. So it's an easier time to find them. And a lot of the board has to do with moisture and thermoregulating without a predator getting them while they're cool. Um, so that's why it works come April, May, everything's out moving and it's a whole different type of herping that you have to do to get, to locate your steady animals. So, you know, coastal patch nose snakes, that's another one I've been working on for several years and I'm finally figuring them out after about my, well, after a lifetime of trying to find them, um, the past six or seven years, I'm really starting to do well. I really know what they're doing now. And you know, that's one that, that could be a candidate for more protection. Uh, they're primarily a coastal sage animal. They primarily eat orange-throated whiptails, which 
for a long time was a species of concern. They took them off more recently because we're getting better numbers in different places. But I mean, coastal sage, they're very secretive. Um, you know, a lot of the herpers here haven't even seen one. So a good year for me. Uh, here's an example of how uncommon they are, or how secretive they are. This year, I probably found over 100 California king snakes um, in my field season. I got eight patch nose, and that's a good wow. year. That's a really good year. Wow. Um, well, I feel lucky to have seen one out there. Right. I recall the yeah. exact 10, and every time I approach it, I think of you guys because I go, I can't <laughs> believe they got one here. Because I've seen like two under that same sheet of tin ever, and oh. you were there for one of them. <laughs> I'm feeling really lucky. You yeah. are. You guys had an amazing trip. Hey, do you need do you need to let your dog out? Yeah, I can go <laughs> do that. I'm sure you're getting a lot of whining. Give me two seconds. All right. Do you think? Yeah, we'll we'll see how long that lasts. He'll be over here knocking, going, "Oh no, I I wanted you to play." That's what this is about. So I'm going to open the curtain so I can see what he's doing. Make sure no coyotes are going to get a hold of him. Oh, uh, boy, do you have a coyote problem where you live then? Um, to me, it's a good thing. But I have a, I actually can look out and see a strip of coastal sage scrub in my, in, behind my house. Oh. And so we have uh, quite a few coyotes. Um, so we got to watch these young dogs when they're outside. Um, uh-huh. We have bobcats. We I'm up to how many snake species? Five or six snake species so far. We get red diamonds, which is amazing. Uh, we get coach whips. We get uh, southern pacifics. Night snakes is our most common. I've seen blind snakes, cow kings, gopher snakes. So you're talking your neighborhood or your yard or? Yeah, right where my fence ends is coastal sage, and uh, oh. the animals come through from there. And, uh, and I have a big backyard and I do cactus and succulents. So I have a very inviting backyard for herbs. Um, yeah, yeah we get road runners and all kinds of cool stuff. Sounds really cool. It is. It's fun. And until the coyotes, you know, this time of year when they pack up again and, and they just go off at like two in the morning, oh. <laughs> then it's not real fun because <laughs> it sounds like they're in your living room. It's still cool. Yeah. I like it. Awesome. Uh, I want to take and do a right turn. And uh, you you mentioned Australia earlier. And uh, I know you spent a significant amount of time there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? We're going back to the younger you. The younger me. Okay. Out of of college. Is that correct? Is that? Um, Yes. So how it started, I always loved Australia. I mean, Australia for me was the go-to place as a herper um you know it's far it's hard to get to but i mean i grew up on bands like midnight oil who's still my favorite band ever and you know hoodoo gurus and all the aussie bands and just the pictures i'd see and as a kid i started watching harry butler in the wild now a lot of people don't know who he was but he was the original uh tv herp guy the original, just hardcore, diving in the water, just amazing. And unfortunately, Harry passed away a few years ago. But look up Harry Butler in the wild. There's videos. And he started it all. He was the man. You know, I'm, I'm writing this down as you're talking because yeah, I had got, never heard of him. Oh, you got to see him. He was the man. And he was on like KPBS. He'd pop on like once or twice a month. 
And I just happened to know when it came on, and I fell in love with that dude. I mean, he's full-on Aussie, but like a research Aussie, but a herp guy. And you know Aussie herpers. They, they, they seem nuts, but uh, there's reasons for that. If you've ever had to deal with an eastern brown snake, you know why they're tailing them and jumping out of the way. Oof. But, yeah, he's, uh, he was the pinnacle. And then you started seeing all these guys kind of doing what he started doing. You know, Steve and Jeff Corwin and everybody else kind of followed in his footsteps. So anyways, I loved Australia. Um, I was doing some work with uh, some Fijian banded iguanas, just some behavioral stuff. And there were some animals that looked like they weren't Fijian iguanas. They looked like maybe a, something else, uh, uh, maybe a hybrid between cresteds and, and banded iguanas. At the time, there were only two. Now there's four or five species. So we wanted to know what these things were. And the only place that had crested iguanas in captivity was the Taronga Zoo in Sydney. So I was the lucky one who got to go out and film behavior because I wanted to look at the behavior of the hybrids and the two pures. And then we took blood samples uh, to do genetics. And I said, I'm in Australia and somebody paid for my plane ticket. So I'm going herping. <laughs> so I took two weeks with a buddy of mine who was a reptile keeper and, and we traveled up the coast. And, you know, I've always been a big monitor lizard guy. Monitors are one of my favorite animals on on the planet and I'd kept monitors my whole life and bred several species. And so I asked the guys at Taronga, you know, who has the best monitors? <laughs> you know, where do I go to see monitors? They said, I ah, probably that Steve character up at Queensland reptile park. I said, well, who's that? And they're like, well, if you're going to travel up the coast, you'll be going right by them. Just stop in there. And, uh, so they told me, you know, where to go herp and then, you know, what zoos I should see. So I called up, what was then known as Queensland Reptile and Fauna Park. And I said, hey, yeah, I'm from so-and-so, and, and you know, I'm in the monitors. I heard you have a bunch there. You know, Can I stop in? They're like, oh, yeah, come on in. Well, you know, Steve would be glad to meet you. And I was like, who? Uh, Steve, he runs this joint. I said, oh, cool. So we went up, and I had this guy show me around the zoo. He's all, Steve will be with us shortly. I said, okay, yeah, whatever. And, you know, I'm holding perennies and, you know, Varanus semi-remix and Keith Hornet, just rare stuff that even in Australia they don't have. And mm. so out comes this dude and he's all proud and gung-ho and he's like, how you going, mate? Steve Irwin. I say, hey, how's it going? So you got monitors. Cool. Let's talk monitors. And he was kind of like shocked at my reaction towards him. And I was like, who is this guy? And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, it's Steve-O. You know, he runs the zoo and blah, blah, blah. And so this guy with all this passion showing me all these animals and, you know, hands me an inland taipan, literally. So it gives, hands me a tail of an inland taipan. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't even know me, man. <laughs> you work in the zoo. You'll be right, mate. Too good. I'm like, all right. And so we had a great time. And he's like, hang out a couple of days. You know, let's go you know, I'll show you more of the zoo and, you know, we'll talk monitors and I got some I want to show you. And it's like, okay. So he brings out this VHS cassette and he goes, these are my docos, you know, documentaries. And I was like, oh, oh you do documentaries. Yeah, mate, I've been doing docos a couple of years. We're, we're, we're on air here in Australia, but they, you know, they didn't really like me too much. So we aren't really on air right now. I said, oh, no kidding. And that's the reaction I got that I didn't know who this guy was. And uh, <laughs> he says, yeah, take this back to the hotel tonight. I'll put you up in the hotel. He set everything up. Totally cool. 
And so John and I crack a couple beers and we start watching this crocodile hunter. And we're just like, unbelievable. This guy is absolutely bizarre nuts. And the way he's just jumping in, this guy's crazy. So we get back and, you know, he comes and finds us first thing the next morning. And did you watch my doc out, mate? Say, yeah, I wouldn't really call it a doco, but yeah, it is entertaining, man. You're crazy. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you think you get, yeah, they didn't like it here. I go, you'd be huge in America. He's all, what? You serious? I said, yeah, dude, you'd be massive in America. You just, they would love you. No, no kidding. I said, yeah, you should. There's a new place coming on called Animal Planet. Check it out. And seriously, like a month later, he calls me. He's all, mate, I'm going to be on Animal Planet. I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, we're coming out on Animal Planet. I was like, no way, that's awesome. And then it was like, boom. You know, over the next year or two, he just blew up. And uh, we kept in touch, and uh, I brought my wife over uh, about a year later, um, and we hung out and went herping, and, you know, he wasn't mass, he wasn't big in Australia yet. He, he, and in America, he was just really starting to boom. And then, uh, I, you know, I went herping with friends and I kept going to Australia and kept in touch with him. And then when he really started getting big, he started coming out here and I was his guide for the rattlesnake shows down here. And, you know, we mm-hmm. hung out and I started noticing the change in him a little bit, uh, a little more crazy, a little more over the top. And, and it, you know, it was no big deal. We were still buddies. And then one day he just said, how'd you like to come to Australia? And I said, yeah, I love Australia. No, I mean, like move here. I was like, what'd you have in mind? I kind of have a job. He's all, and I said, I could probably, you know, I could probably take a sabbatical. That'd be cool. How long can I go there for? He goes, I think we can only get you a one year work permit. I said, that's cool. So let me talk to my wife. So I said, hey, hon, you want to move to Australia for a year? Live at Steve's place? She's like, yeah. Okay, cool. Called up Steve, cool. I'll we'll set it up. So the deal was I was going to get more, I was going to work at the zoo, get more experience with the lapids and crocodilians. And at the same time, I would teach the staff research because ah. they really wanted to do more conservation stuff. Because at the time, it was mostly, you know, docos. <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah, we moved out there and uh, it was just crazy filming, just like, and a lot of herp keeping, which was great, you know, but Steve would go off and he'd be filming in other countries and we'd be just buried at the zoo and just trying to keep up. And, you know, and then things kind of start, you know, when you, this is always the hard part of this, the questions I get about Steve, because uh, there's so much going around about what happened with me and him and nothing really happened. It was, uh, you learn a lot about people when you live with them, right? And you uh-huh. and you're hanging out with them on a daily basis. Uh, thing people you thought you knew really well, you really didn't. And that's pretty much all I can say. <laughs> but oh. it just we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, he's not the guy you see on TV. And they usually never are. Uh, we're still good friends, and I was bummed, and I still miss him. Uh, but you know, things got a little nutty. And I went to Melbourne Zoo. The guys down in Melbourne were like, hey, we need a herp keeper for like four months. How much time you left in your visa? I said, about four months. They said, when can you be down? I said, oh, pretty soon, I guess. So, yeah, 
we we didn't leave on bad terms. Uh, but you know, after I left, I think they were irritated. But uh, that's kind of all I'm going to say about it. You know, because and I knew this. I didn't want to go too into this, but I know people are going to ask and think about it. So I said, why not let Mike hear it? So basically, yeah, we were still friends. I left, went to another zoo, had a great time, showed Steve's people a little bit of stuff, but mostly I learned a lot of stuff and had a good time. And I still go to Australia. Uh, I was supposed to take my boys to Western Australia this year, but COVID blew that for me. But yeah. hopefully, hopefully next year, Western Australia with my kids. They've been. Awesome. My kids, uh, all of them, and my wife and I took the kids uh, three years ago, and uh, they want to live there. <laughs> they, they loved wow. it. They got to see a lot of cool herps in the wild. They got to play with herps at the zoos, and yeah, they, they had a really good time. So that, that, will always, that will always be in the docket. I mean, if you're a herper, you have to go to Australia. There's... Not, I know. It's like moving it. up my list. I heard you talking to Scott. You know, Scott Iper is a friend of mine. I met him when I was at Melbourne oh. Zoo. Okay. Uh, you know, so I've known Scott 20 years, and uh, he took me and Maddie out herping when we were there a couple of years ago. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Sweet. So wonderful place. And yes, Australia is the pinnacle, and I will always love it, and I will always go back. Cool. I appreciate you telling me some of this Irwin story because yeah. – I hadn't heard this, and uh, oh, okay. and I appreciate you telling it in a way that makes sense. And you know, you don't yeah. have to get into the details. Nah. We don't. We don't need that. But no, no. but it's it's cool that uh, that you guys were were buddies, and yeah. a lot of cool things happen because as as you probably know, uh, we have a lot of biologists in the country mm-hmm. right now because of that dude. Oh, of course, and that's the you know that some of them are true. friends of mine. You know. Right. And I mean, no, there's a, I give Steve props to that more than probably anything in the world because he really brought a love of herps and he made, he was like the best PR for herps you could ever get. And no matter any issue we ever had, I will always give him huge props on that because, right, and people loved him. And, and, you know, that's, and I, I guess I've, burst a lot of bubbles by talking in the past and and I don't want to do that I don't want to like make people hate him I don't hate him but I heard a lot of stories that supposedly came from me like we fought and just this ridiculous stuff and yeah. uh I just want to come out there and just say none of that happened <laughs> we're friends till the end and uh okay yeah so let's we're clearing that up right now yeah all right but yeah you heard it here folks it, so, anyways, good. Moving on, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, Austria. Yeah, we get, we have lots to talk about, but I want to make one final yeah. point about that. It, it's it's a crazy that in order to become big in Australia, it had to be big in the United States yeah. first. And that, and you know, it happened. It was amazing because you know I'd talked to other hurt people there, and they just didn't like him. They just thought he was embarrassing for the country. And then when I'm working there. You know, they'd announced that Steve's doing the one o'clock croc demo, and it was just ridiculous how many people would pack into these demos. You know, the zoo isn't a big place. He made it, but he quadrupled the size of the place uh, since he got big in America. I mean, he, you know, the place took off. But it was funny because I was I was one of the bigger guys on staff there. You know, Aussies aren't real huge guys. 
actually, I say they're like koalas. The ones in the north are really small, and as you move south, they get bigger and bigger. <laughs> like, like <laughs> Queensland koalas are these cute little things, and you get to Tasmania, and they're like big, ugly grizzly bears. And that's kind of how the people are, too. Um, so, yeah, on the staff, I was bigger than everybody. So Steve wanted me to be his backup on the croc demo. So as he's doing his thing, oh. I, I would have to sit there. And if he got grabbed, I'd have to either jump on him or jump on the croc, depending on the situation. And <laughs> so I'd be back there and these people and surprising number of Americans in the crowd because, you know, Steve went so big here that everybody wanted a piece of the guy. And after the demo, he would literally grab me by the shirt. They'd open the gates and I'd sprint for the house. And like just arms coming in. It was like I, I felt like a fullback with the running back behind me and like 14 teams trying to tackle the dude at once. And it was just every day. And then the wow. Aussies, the Aussies got into it too. And he, you know, he's like a treasure over there to a lot of the folks. Yeah. Well, so. I see, you know, his kids, his family are, are carrying on a, a, I think a pretty good conservation message and education oh, yeah. message for kids. So that's, that's uh, moving forward as well. So yeah, definitely. Uh, Robert's definitely following in his tracks, and and Bindi and Terry's still doing her thing, and I think the zoo's still doing pretty well. We we stopped into the zoo a few years ago and looked good. A lot more animals, a lot of nice new exhibits. You know, when it was a little Queensland fauna park, it was like what you think of as these little fauna parks you see in Australia, but it's it's become a full blown zoo. And I have really good friends that still work there. Awesome. That's good. And it's cool that you keep going back to Australia too. Yeah. Yeah. That's the funny thing with herpers. It's like you go to one place, you're like, okay, I'm good there. Let's keep moving around the globe. But uh, now Australia is that place where you, it's so big. You you just can't cover it all. I mean, I have, I've, I mean, I've, I've herped in all seven States, but there's, it's like you get a day here. You get a day in Tasmania and then you got to go, you know, to Victoria and then you got to fly to Western Australia to really see everything. And yeah, I got a lot more work to do there. Put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think I'm going to take off a small bite. I'm going to probably do Queensland. Yeah. um, My initial trip, I think. Yeah. Whenever that happens. That's a, that's a pretty easy start. Um, Yeah. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, it's it's got the infrastructure. Uh, you can drink the water. The people are friendly. Uh, you can eat anything you want, pretty much. It's just when you're out in the bush and you're you know miles from anything that things can get a bit hectic. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, it's it's not like going into Mexico or you know, not that Mexico is a scary place, but you know, there's just that comfort level of everybody in Australia is cool and will take you in and help you out and speak your language. And you aren't going to get sick from eating something. Whereas everybody fears that in Mexico, but you and I both know that that's not really the case there. Um, Hardly ever. Right. So it's just, I don't know. It's got a comfort to it. And, you know, Cuba is that way to me now. Cuba is kind of like my Mexico, you know, I just feel more Uh comfortable there than anywhere. Yeah, it's a that's it's can't say it enough. That's a wonderful place too. So. Right, right. <laughs> Where else have you traveled? Uh, let's see. I've uh, although not with you, I've done Peru. Uh, I've done Ecuador. I've been to Costa Rica a couple times. Took the kids there two years ago, and they adored it. 
Um, and my kids are bilingual, so that helps a lot because my Spanish awesome. has lost track. <laughs> it was really good, and I've I've lost a bit of it. So the kids helped me out with that. Uh, I've been to four or five, six states of Mexico, uh, Fiji, Indonesia, um, Central America, some other parts of South America, Africa, which I really want to go back to. Yeah, I've I've done my fair share. Yeah. Uh, Any places you're looking forward to visiting for the first time? Oh, yeah, there's so many. I'm constantly looking at it. I'd really like to do... uh, more and i'd like to go to southeast asia i've never really Uh, hit that the only kind of asian region i've been to is indonesia and that was primarily for komodos um yeah that was amazing uh because i I used to work with komodos so going and actually seeing komodos and hanging out with them for several days in the wild was unbelievable but yeah i'd like to for a big lizard guy like you that's gotta be that was the pinnacle, you know, because I, I mean, I was living in Australia. I'd photographed almost every species of monitor in Australia in the wild. Um, but then there's all that, you know, stuff just north of Australia. There's so many cool monitors, but Komodo was the pinnacle. So I had to go see them. And I'm glad we did it then because it's changed quite a bit. Uh, but it was it was pretty amazing. It's you herpers go to many places and they have many places of pilgrimage. But it's the most touristy thing you can do as a herper, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's really gotten out of hand. Um, it wasn't like that when I was there. It was still pretty, you know, we're talking 20 years ago. So it was still, you know, we were the only ones there. There wasn't a big group. We lived on the deck of a little boat. You know, there wasn't much for hotels or restaurants at all. And, you know, there were still wild Komodos. I told the, I told the guide, I said, I don't want these lazy ones that are laying around and in bathrooms. And, you know, I don't want these. I want a dragon that's either going to rush me or is going to take off when I see him. And he, we found that on Rincha. He said, if ah. you hike, we got to hike up here at least two miles. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And, man, I got pictures of dragons hiding from me in the bushes, like nine-foot dragons, scared to death of me hiding in bushes and if i got anywhere near them they'd bolt and just be running for the hills and so yeah i'm glad i got my taste of actual wild dragons very yeah. cool uh yeah i guess it is kind of a touristy thing and these days and i think maybe they're shutting down access to it uh for part of the year now and- yeah yeah they've really slowed it down it's gotten a little more expensive and uh i guess what you kind of have to do if you have that many people that want to go in and yeah they the infrastructure's built up quite a bit, I hear. Um, but yeah. Well, there's there's a level of romance, what I call romance to this. Sure. Uh, adventure travel, right? Right. You, you have to fly to an exotic location, and then you have to get on a boat. Yes. And, and go on a little yeah. boat to an island. And, yeah. and there's a, that's just romantic in, in yeah. you know, the broad stretch of the, what the term refers to. And, and it's a lot different from, uh, you know, driving to the Everglades. Oh yeah. Uh, so, so next so level. Different. Right. Yeah. There's, there's places out there that that's what I like. I like being in the boonies and hiking in and getting muddy and leech bit. And, you know, just, there's so many places you can still go. I mean, I still like doing all the, all the easier stuff too, cause there's species you want to see. Right. And I mean, yeah. I still haven't hit all the U S I've, I've been to the pinnacle places, you know, I've 
I do Arizona every year, West Texas. I've done the Everglades, Snake Road, you know, all the Snake Road. Yeah. Yes. I still haven't met up with you there. I got to bring the kids out. I did meet you there. We met there, but yeah, we, yeah. But we didn't, we didn't do it, but I met you there and we did a couple other places right. nearby. Yeah. Right, right, right. But yeah. I mean, I haven't done, I haven't had the Pingleton experience. <laughs> I need the, I need to come home saying that was so much Pingle. <laughs> you know, had too to much. That. that was a ton of pingle right there. <laughs> so. That might that might be too much pingle for some folks. But, uh, uh, very clever. I love the way you worked that in there. <laughs> I was, I've been trying to figure out how I was going to do that for a while. <laughs> oh man! But now there's going back to like places that you see. I mean, how cool would it be to go see a Mang Mountain Viper or? you know, uh, a giant salamander or, you know, go to Borneo and see herps and orangutans. You know, there's places like that that I still would like to go to. Um, But, you know, my kids are at the college, getting getting to the college age, the first one anyway. So it's going to be easier stuff for now. And uh, hope the old body can hang out that long. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's, you know, when you, when you get up there a little bit, that becomes an issue. You start thinking about that. What what yeah. can I get done this decade? <laughs> right? I mean, the first time I went to Australia, I broke my foot on the second day and I duct taped it and herped for two weeks. Oh. And, and oh, now man. it's to the point where it's like, if I don't get, you know, at least four hours of sleep and I'm struggling and my knee starts to hurt and it's like, damn, um, I'm looking at 50 here in a couple of months. And, you know, it's, it's all in your head. The age thing's all in your head is what I tell myself. And then it's like you wake up and pull the muscle getting out of bed. <laughs> it's like, what in the heck just happened? So, yeah, you know, something to think about. But, you know, well, I have to say on, on the really long trips, um, when I wherever it is I'm going, you know, I really like that down day in the middle of the trip yeah, where right. maybe maybe we sleep in or maybe we don't pound it quite so hard and yeah. I can recover. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I hear you a hundred percent. It's like, <laughs> especially on those 10 day and two week trips where you're just going and it takes about two weeks to recover now when you get home. <laughs> yeah. You need a vacation. From right. Your vacation. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but well, my dad still does it and he's 80 and he's planning, you know, a three week Africa trip and, you know, he still goes hard. So I figure if he can do it, I can do it. Didn't you go to to Africa with your dad? Is that that... I went? I took my dad to Australia. Australia, Uh, okay. Yeah, he's very much into. He's a mountain man, uh, just a beast of an outdoorsman, which kind of is where my whole outdoor side came from, and Uh and the the reptile thing kind of came from him and my mom with the zoo here we lived at for the most part when I was little and. uh, But it was the outdoor trips, you know, backpack. I grew up with a pack on in the Sierras and the sawtooth in idaho and the rockies in montana and wyoming and you know, that's just what we did i mean we backpacked all summer and you know for my eight for my high school graduation my dad had me do a five-day ice climb trip of mount rainier you know wow. so so it's it's the outdoor side is what really gave me the appreciation for everything we see outside and you know grizzlies and moose and everything that that came from all those trips. And so my dad always just did North America. And when he retired, I said, you know, you have to see 
I mean, he'd been to Japan. He was in the military. So he'd been to Japan. He'd been to Europe. And, you know, but he'd never been to those wild other countries. And I said, Dad, uh-huh. as a guy who likes geology a lot and, and, you know, just landscape and culture, I said, I have to take you to Australia. So I took him and, yeah, he loved it. And I think he got the bug because, man, he has been going strong. He's been doing Iceland and Africa, and he's doing another oh, Africa. Wow. Yeah, he's just going hard. So, well, yeah. well good for him. Yeah, good for him, and and what a gift for you. Oh yeah, uh, because I I, you, I listen to what you you say, and I'm thinking, well, what he what he also gave you is just the realization that a lot of things are possible. Oh that yeah, maybe other people don't think are possible. Right? Oh, for sure, and you know that's something I'm instilling in my kids, and uh-huh. you know we. When my firstborn, Maddie, who a lot of the Herpers know, Matthias, Maddie, he's, you know, when I wrote a lot for the magazines, Maddie was a lot of times my uh, my model for my articles. So kind of a lot of people grew up with Maddie. And uh, I've, I've never met Maddie, but yeah. I've seen enough pictures of him <laughs> that I, and I've heard you talk about him enough. I feel like yeah. I know him a little right. bit. So. Right. So he, uh, he, he, he was the one who started me getting big on the kids in the outdoors and my other two same thing i mean from a very very young age they've been out there in the bush and uh and we're lucky that we can take them to cool places so we're trying to get them to a lot of other countries and not just for animals but for the culture and to see what things are like outside of america that's important to us so They've they've been to quite a few places now and they've been all over the u.s and you know australia costa rica and and they love it. I mean, that's, that's cool. really giving them all a big appreciation of it. You can never put the lid back on that. No, no. And I don't want to. I, I want them to experience all of it. And, you know, they see my photos and they see everything I've done. And they, they want a piece of that action. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, That's yeah. good. Because it's better than going, oh, that crazy old man. You know, yeah, his, right. And right. traveling. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Much better this way. No, I, I love it. And they're great little companions, and they do well in the field. And my wife, too, she's hardcore. I mean, she slept on the deck of a boat in Indonesia for a week just to let me see my dragons. So she. All right. Yeah. So it's I'm lucky. I'm a lucky dude. Yeah. And just, you know, oh, sleeping on the deck to see dragons. I mean. <laughs> How many, how many people can say that sentence? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> you are a lucky dude. You yeah, are lucky dude. it's good. I've, I've been blessed. So, <laughs> But it is what you make it, and I tell everybody that. You know, you, got, you know, you get the young herpers coming up to you at shows or in the field or whatever and say, oh, I saw that thing you did or that photo you took. How on the earth can you do that? I said, anybody can do that. You just got to want it. You know, you got yeah. to get over that that fear. You got to. Make yourself uncomfortable. That's what I tell my kids. If you're yeah. uncomfortable, you're living it. Yeah, that's true, too. That's true. Uh, talking about young Harpers for a minute, um, I want to touch base on what, what we used to have, uh, an organization that is kind of tailed off, but used to be a lot bigger, and that's the National or the North American Field Herping Association. Yeah. Uh, so any Herper of any age, some age to them, knows what what NAFA was a lot of young people don't really know much about it but uh, you want to talk about that a little bit and yeah yeah I'd love to actually um so I don't know it would have been right about when 
field herp forum started getting big but the the pre-facebook days you know when there were still forums that everybody and you know me and you met there and well me and you probably met on king snake even before that probably um but you know field herp forum kind of became the pinnacle for field herpers in the u.s to meet up and you know there was a lot of guys from other countries but it was primarily u.s and so you know we do our field reports there and you know, it was, it was a fun community. And somebody said, you know, all, there were so many guys from SoCal there. We we're like, why don't we all meet up and, you know, just kind of hang out and go herp. And I believe it was Mike Clarkson who, who set up a trip. And we get there and there's like 30 people. I was like, wow, I didn't know there were this many herpers down here. Wow. And we're all talking about all the same areas and the same herps. And, but what really got me is when we're in the field, I was watching people and they're taking really good notes temperatures and they're taking coordinates and everything and i was impressed i'm like wow i didn't know you know other field herp guys did this just you know the non-herpetologist kind i thought they just wanted to go see stuff and take pictures and so and i just kept seeing it and everybody's collecting all this data and you know we're sitting around at lunch uh brian hines was there and geez who else there's a quite a few people that i can't recall (laughs) but i remember a conversation with brian hines and we're all just sitting there. I said, what do you guys do with all this data? I said, because that's good stuff. You know, that's valuable. And they said, I, we don't really have anywhere to put it. And they said, we don't really know what to do with it. You know, the museums aren't really that interested because, you know, we're just private guys. And I said, man, we need to make you guys like a database. And so I was talking to Brian about it and some other people and I, I put one little post up on Fielder Forum. Like, you know, what if we had like a, like a database and like a herp society built around it, you know, and it became this, you know, we had a really good conversation, herpers from all over. And, you know, we were going to start with SoCal, the Southern California Field Herping Association. But then uh, everybody else from all over the country on Field Herp was like, well, we want part of it, you know, call it North American. And it kind of just everybody together joined in and just started. And, you know, the, the name was brought out, North American Field Herping Association. And I was really pushing the data side. I was like, if everybody's doing this, you know, there there really needs to be a database. And so I got together with uh, some guys here, some herpetologists here from USGS and other places. And, you know, they kind of gave me a good idea of what they would use. And and then I brought it back to Field Herb Forum. And Matt Jepson and I wrote uh, the first bylaws for the North American Field Herping Association, which took forever and then everybody would, you know, we'd vote on it and everybody would say, oh, I don't think this. Should. So it took a long time. So these bylaws were adapted and it kind of broke into chapters. And we had our SoCal chapter. And um, I said, listen, I, I'll, I'll help start this database thing, but I want you guys running this. I do data and, you know, the government gets my data. You guys need to run your own stuff. And that's when Don Becker came in and said, you know, I'll help, you know, build this database. And, you know, so it was built for herpers that they don't, they can control their data. That was the big thing everybody wanted. They didn't want their sites being pillaged. And I was like, yeah, I'm, it's your guys' stuff. You say whatever you want. And so Don really took over. He he led the charge on the whole database. That was fantastic. But for, for our little chapter, which was fair size, I mean, we had like 150 members at one point. We were doing actual mm-hmm. monthly meetings. We had like a herp society and we had speakers and, you know, Lee Grismer and Eric Dugan and all these people speaking to us. 
And uh, yeah, it was fun. And it just kind of petered out like other herb societies, but the online presence was still pretty big. And, you know, the database is still going. A lot of people are still putting stuff in. And I know Herp Mapper's doing the same and it kind of paired up. And, you know, you guys, uh, Herp Mapper has all my data. Anything that goes in the into the Herp database goes into Herp Mapper. And a lot of people are doing that. Yeah, we've got two, we got two databases out of the, we got a, a North American database and a global database. Right out of this effort so yeah it's uh, it it was really cool i mean brian hines just i mean well after i kind of was like okay it's going good now i'm gonna back off you guys run with it kent van soy uh became the coordinator for that uh especially for socal and uh he ran with it and got a lot of partners on board mm -hmm. cal fish and wildlife um, and then Brian really took off with it after Kent passed. Brian grabbed a hold of that and ran, and just got so many good partners and you know, a lot of research requests. And you know, Fish and Wildlife, USGS, a lot of these groups are really using this data, and it's it's been very helpful for everybody. And I mean, I've even used it for patch notes. Yeah. I think the the place that it worked the best was the regional chapters. Yeah, yeah, I where agree. People could actually meet and do things together. Uh, right. That was a really strong. I know in the Midwest, we, we had a bit of a challenge there because we're, we were so spread out, but we right. did some, some cool stuff there. And the Northeast chapter was very similar to you guys in that uh, they had a lot of face-to-face -face meetings and mm -hmm. uh, group outings and stuff. And I think it worked, yeah, uh, it worked very right. well. I mean, we, we still do quite a bit of it. Um, you know, we would meet up with researchers and other groups and have these big, you know, day or weekend long surveys, a lot like you guys did in, in the Northeast, did quite a few as well. And I mean, we still have them. Uh, we, we have a very good relationship with the Tahone Conservancy on Tahone Ranch, and we still do, I think, three surveys a year. And they've gotten a lot of good stuff out of it. I mean, the first Mountain mm -hmm. Kings ever known from the ranch came from us the first rubber boas yeah. came from us uh Steben salamander you know a lot of really cool stuff happening mm -hmm. so, and it's a wonderful place and you know it's kind of our own little herping mecca because people are allowed in it. i've seen some uh, some posts people made about the the work they've done out there and mm -hmm. uh it's like oh that looks like a like a really fun thing to do for yeah. a bunch of people to get together a couple times a year maybe and right all the props to that go to Todd Batty. He, he's the guy that made oh, the, yeah. mm -hmm. he made the relationship and he's keeping it going. That's all Todd. So yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Hats off to him. Big yeah. time. Yeah. And of course, like, you know, we had the, the NAFA forum, you know, mm -hmm. it was part of field her forum. And right. But unfortunately, Facebook killed a lot of things and it did. Facebook really had a big hand in, in killing that. Um, yeah, it kind of killed the whole, everything about it. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, I, I like to think that the, the regional chapter thing was was very cool because you got together with people. And, and perhaps it didn't work as well as a collective whole spread across the country or right. ac across North America. Right. Um, but it seemed to work really well on a smaller level. And Perhaps somewhere in the future, somebody can retool it. I don't know. Uh, right. You look at things like the ABA, you know, uh, uh, American Birding Association, and they have they're able to do things on a on a national yeah. level 
Um, but it would take uh, quite a bit of work, and I'm really tied up right now. So don't, yeah, me too. Not I'm good. <laughs> I tried. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I you mean, did it, it to your credit, you know. It went well for many years. I mean, it went. Well. We the NAFA chapters. I mean, we were running for five or six years. Uh, a lot of it is, and I know you know this. I mean, over the past ten to fifteen years, things have changed so much in the herp general herp world. I mean, the shows and breeding and all that is one thing. And I, you know, I did that my whole life up until just a couple of years ago. So that's all changed. And the whole just field herping in general has changed. I mean, and I don't want to talk badly about anybody, but it seems like the younger generation is a lot different than we were, <laughs> like a lot different. And it's, and I don't know if, you could make a NAFA or something with the younger guys these days. It's just all digital all the time, I think, unless they're in the field. And even when they're in the field, it's cameras and, you know, movies and Instagram. And it's just, and my own son is, is involved in it. It's, it's a whole different world and it takes him getting used to. Yeah. And I'm not sure I want to be, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I want to try to make my bones now. Right. You know, you right. and I did stuff when if you made mistakes, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. You weren't on somebody's Instagram feed. Exactly. Or, you know, nobody's grabbing a picture of you doing something dumb. Right. Uh, so I, I think there's different pressures. Sure. Uh, on young Harpers, too. Oh, you, yeah. 100%. You, and you're trying to find your identity. Yeah. And you're you're in a group with literally thousands of Harpers now. And uh, how do you make your mark? And how do you find your people, get your, you know, get your, your group. And, you know, we all have little herping groups and stuff. How do you do that these days? It's gotta be a lot harder. It's tough. I think too. I, it is very tough. I, uh, I see it with the fishing too. Fishing's exactly the same as herping. Is it? Oh yeah. It's, I got to get that shot with the biggest fish I can in a different way and using a different bait and, you know, and everybody's got a camera rolling. And when somebody makes a mistake, they just take an absolute beating for at yep. least a couple of weeks. And that's kind of how, you know, the herping's been online, primarily online. I mean, you see somebody do something and they just take it. I mean, they, they yeah. take it bad. And that's making me pull back a little bit. And <laughs> a lot of people have been asking, yeah, you're posting as much and you aren't in that group as much. And it's like, man, I, I don't need the negative social aspects. I love the positive of facebook and the forums but the negative aspects are enough that you know i pull back a little bit i uh, maybe i'll do my own thing this week and not post anything and just go enjoy it on my own yeah yeah which is kind of you know when when josh and i worked on this field herping guide and it's funny to think that one of the things that we we had to touch base on in terms of ethics you know there's there's field ethics there's also social ethics right uh, you make up one story. Oh, yeah. you steal one photograph. Oh, yeah. You make one claim that is not true or correct. You embellish one thing, and you're yeah. done. Oh, yeah. Especially online, man. Online, it's like we've yeah. all known each other for years, but I mean, how many of the hurt people online do you actually know and have actually, you know, talked to and met in person? And it's it's small, and they yeah. remember it, and you know. Those, one or two people can turn on you for something you said and they never forget it. And I, yep. I mean, I've, 
I'm cool with almost 99% of people, but there's one or two out there who didn't like something I said, you know, a couple of years ago or 10 years ago, and I still take it, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I get it. I mean, it's, it's part of the whole social media thing, I guess. But, you know, as I get older, I'm just the social media presence or the, I don't know, the your focus changes. You know, it's yeah. I focus more on my own stuff and my own family now. And that's become a sideline thing rather than sure. the main thing you go look at every day. I, it's fun, but uh, I've backed off quite a bit. Yeah. I, I was on a Zoom call with a couple of my Illinois friends, her friends. And, you know, I, they're like, show us some pictures from Peru uh, from your latest trip. So I showed I don't know, a couple dozen pictures or more. And they're like, how can we never see you post this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> this is my special reserves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's not really, I'm not really that guy who puts yeah. everything out there, right. you know? Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, everybody sees the pics of Maddie and I'll still post Maddie, but nobody ever sees my two younger ones. And that's because it's just gotten yeah. so big and out of hand. It's like, I don't know these people, you know? Yeah. I, I have a, a different family page for that stuff. And, and sure. you know, we just do it there. But, you know, it's fun and I still love people and I still love herping with a bunch of friends and people. And mm -hmm. anytime I'm going to another state, I'll call everybody I know and say, hey, man, who wants to hook up? It's it's a great time. And I, I'd love for these young guys to all do that and experience that. Yeah, I, I it, it just keeps I I'm pausing because it keeps going into my head my own kids and and what I see <laughs> what, what I see my older ones doing on the internet and how I keep having to tell them you know be careful this stuff can can bite you and it, yep. and it's happened and uh, yep. I just do the right thing and you know and your friends asking you why you don't post this that's Maddie. Man, I'm yeah. I'm going through slides right now. So I'm having, you know, 20 years of slides scanned. Um, so a lot of people are seeing my old retro stuff, some of it. But I mean, I saw some, yeah. 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 But like there's whole albums of like with Irwin doing stuff. And Maddie's like, why are you not posting this, Dad? This is like gold. I said, yeah, it's my gold. We don't, yeah. we don't need to share this with everybody. Oh, yeah. you'd be huge on Instagram. It's like, I don't care about that. I could care less yeah. about being huge on Instagram. The only reason I'm there is to keep my eye on you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so. Good point. Yeah. Good point. So, yeah. Well, I want to ask you, I want to talk about one more thing. And, okay. and I, this might be out of left, left field, but uh, I don't know anybody in this community who has found more aberrant herps <laughs> in, in the wild than you. Yeah. Uh, it's, Care to explain that? <laughs> I, you know, I get that question everywhere I go, and I just, I don't know, man. It's just pure dumb luck. And I mean, I'll still look at some of those pictures and just go, "How does that even happen?" And it's funny because Maddie was there with me the last time. You know, I'd seen an albino uh, Encetina clobberi probably 15 years ago, and I was just like, that was my first albino in the wild, and I was just so stoked. And I had to jump out of the way of a car and the car ran it over right in front of me. And it, it died in my hand. And I was on my Ugh. knees in the middle of the road in the rain. That was the only car I saw all night. And I had to jump out of the way from it and it killed it right in front of me. 
And it was just gut-wrenching. But then probably eight years ago, I found a piebald one. And I'm like, what is with these Encetina? And then two years ago, Maddie and I were out, and I'm like, I see it in the road. I'm like, dude. Maddie's like, stop, stop, Encetina. I go, oh, I know, but did you look at it? He's like, what do you mean? I go, look at it. And he looks out the window, and he looks at me. He's like, oh, my God. And he jumps out, and, you know, it's this albino, <laughs> another albino. And so he was pretty stoked to be there with that one. And I just started laughing. He's like, what's so funny? I said, I am going to take so much heat for this because that's like number six or something like that in the wild. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, yeah, anytime there's an albino, I see my name pop up. It's funny. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> I know, don't get it either. I'll take it, though. I'm trying to remember if there was a, a is it a patch nose snake or what was um, it? So the first one is the Encetina Calabra. The second one was a glossy, albino glossy. Glossy, snake. okay. Uh, the yeah. third was an albino shovel nose snake. And then I don't take credit for this one, but uh, a friend of mine, Nate Smith, he found a bunch of tadpoles of Western Spadefoots. And there was like 30 of them that were albino. Um, but it was right near both our houses. So he he called me up and I got to go see these. So that was cool. And he just recently found another uh, tadpoles or morphs. I can't remember. So the same area is still producing them. Um, wow. Yeah. And then another albino and satina. And then there have been some weird morphy looking weird things. But yeah, albino wise, it's just silly. Yeah. And there's guys <laughs> who are in the field more than me who still haven't pulled one. Like Brian Hines is like, I hate you so much. I'm out in the field every day. <laughs> And I have not seen an albino. And you go out, you know, once or twice a week and you pull some. It's like, yeah, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, it's just kind of amazing, you know. Yeah. Uh, some of us have gone many years, decades without seeing anything weird. <laughs> right. You know. Right. right. Hey, you'll get yours. It's interesting. <laughs> but I mean, well, you take a picture and it's like, okay. <laughs> that yeah. was fun. I don't want, if, if I have a choice, I'll take combat ritual combat oh, yeah. over aberrant morph any day that's that's yeah. what i'm hoping for oh it is it is so amazing the first really good combat i saw was in arizona probably 10 years ago and it was two mojaves and they're in this clearing and it was just i mean i laid down next to them with a wide angle and they just ignored me completely and it was just the coolest series ever and i mean i've seen ruber do it now um i've seen panamans do it quite a bit I actually have a little video clip of a panamint and a desert stripe whip snake getting into it for a second. What? Uh, yeah, nobody's ever heard that. Uh, I was thinking of publishing oh. it, but it lasted just so minuscule. It was like two seconds or three seconds. But oh. yeah, this, it was this one big bully of a panamint. And, you know, these, these whip snakes share the dens with them. And so you'll oh. have this pile of panamints and then, you know, the whip snakes will crawl through them and everything. And we're sitting there watching them, and this one Panama was just a bully. Anything that moved, he'd go after. And, like, we had to watch our own moves because he'd come and he'd try and combat with you. He'd stand up right in your face. He'd be like, oh, don't move, don't move. Any movement, and this thing would go off. And this whip snake was one of the more dominant male whip snakes, and he was kind of pounding away at some of the smaller ones. And he comes zipping up the crack. and this Panama stands up on him, and he stands up on the Panama. I'm like, film! So Maddie got this video. <laughs> Maddie hits hits go right then and there. They both stand up, and there was like one little thing, and then and then the whip snake took off. I'm like, did we just see interspecific combat? So 
I have to go back. That's crazy. And, yeah, it was nuts. So I have to kind of go wow. back and look at that a little. That that might need a little note, even though it was short, but it was cool. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get the right yeah. place at the right time and you, you could see mm-hmm. it pretty easy. Yeah. What's funny is in San Diego, I almost never see it. I think I saw my first Ruber combat this year. Oh, really? I've studied the thing for 20 years. You just don't see it a lot, whereas Panamans do it left and right. You bring up uh, Rubers again, and I I just think about all the work you've put into this and and how easy it is to go deep on rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah. There's just so much. I mean, we're learning more every day, and the whole social aspect. and, And, you know, I think about the denning stuff and how different they are than every other rattlesnake when it comes to their overwintering side. They're just so different. And then you got to wonder, is it like, is it a social game? What, what is it? You know, they don't raise their babies in these things or they don't even, the babies don't even go to the dens. The babies disappear. We don't know where the uh-huh. babies go. And like this year was the first year I saw a couple babies. But even Clobber mentions it in the famed rattlesnake book that, uh-huh. you know, baby rubers, where are they? In the desert, you see them. In the desert, you night drive babies fairly frequently. But on Mm -hmm. the coast, trying to find like a young of the year red diamond is, you just don't see it. They're laying low. They definitely lay low. Well, I mean, when they're born, it's the worst time of year there is. I mean, you know, they're born August, September. And it's hot and dry. And the adults have been gone for a month, two months. Sometimes you see nocturnal activity. Um, so we don't even know where these females are given birth. I mean, I have an idea uh, back based on the radio tracking days, but you know, you just don't see moms with babies. I don't think it's ever been recorded. I can't remember anybody ever telling me they've seen a mother Ruber with babies or even shed skins or anything. So that's the mystery. That's the mystery I want to solve. Where are they giving birth and why aren't these babies, you know, going to the dens? Why aren't they hanging out more with mom or why don't we see it? Where is it happening? Because we know it's taking place. Interesting. So, yeah. It's all, it's all happening underground somewhere. Maybe. Yeah. I'm thinking giant boulders. My best evidence is giant boulders in the middle of the coastal sage. One big single boulder. I have some evidence of that. So, well, you, you still have work to do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. The technology is finally getting better so that it's making life a lot easier for researchers. Because in the old days, it was like you radio track and that's that, you know, and you, you yep. maybe get a GPS if you're lucky and all your giant your giant GPS pack that you had to haul in is working. You know, <laughs> now it's these little tiny things and radio tracking, yeah. you know, the radios used to be as big as my head. And now they're finally getting small enough that you can actually put them in smaller species. And yeah, things are, technology's coming a long way. So you're sticking these things on insects now. Right. Uh, it's crazy, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Good stuff. Well, I tell you, I, I've enjoyed our conversation. Oh, 100%. Um, I think maybe we could just keep on going. Yeah. As uh, I often, often say, right. But, uh, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show and, uh, I just feel like I could go back and talk about everything we talked about in depth, even more, uh, sure. especially things like, uh, like Cuba, which, uh, I find a fascinating subject, but uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And I know there are a lot of people out that are will look forward to listening to you and hearing about um, 
just what you, the things you've been involved with. And uh, of course, there's always people are going to be interested in hearing about uh, your, your Irwin days, so to speak. And I'm glad you came and talked about that. You know, when, uh, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about on the show, I I really, uh, I knew we would talk about Australia, but I didn't really think we'd talk about Steve Irwin very much, but uh, (laughs) it was kind of cool to do so. So yeah. Well, Hey man, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. That was fantastic. I, I love what you're doing, especially that it's field oriented and it's it's not another you know captive herb thing. I love the field aspect. I love that you're doing it because uh, I've known you a long well, time and I've herped with you and you're a great guy. And I, I'm loving the guests. You know, I don't get a lot of time to listen to podcasts, but I have listened to yours, and it's great hearing you know my friends on there and people yeah. I know or people I respect that I don't know. And uh, I, it's wonderful, man. Keep it up. I, I love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm uh, racking up the interviews over, you know, the holiday season here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it, I don't have, it's the perfect time to do it. COVID yeah. worked well for, for the, the Mike Pingleton podcast, you know, it, it, yeah. it helped yeah. you out because we're all, we're all in the house. Hopefully. I, I got a really nice tweet from, uh, Anna Dale, who who uh, I'm friends with on tw- on Twitter, and uh, she mentioned uh, my podcast along with uh, the Ologies podcast is mm-hmm. some of the things that helped her get through the the pandemic of 2020. And I'm like, nice. Hey, this thing has really helped me get through yeah, the pandemic, right? Well, no, I mean it's good for everybody, and it's, I mean, just hearing the little things that we don't get to hear. I I heard Emily Taylor when she was on, and I I yeah. know she's a friend, and just you know, hearing more in detail stuff about her work and stuff that, you know, stuff I never get to hear talk about. It's awesome. I love it. And and everything yeah. Scott's doing over in Oz and ah, it's fantastic. I dig it, man. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I'll try to keep it rolling for a while. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Don't change. Keep it going. And hopefully I'll get to go to Peru with you or we go to Oz or do something cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's been a long time since, uh, well, you've been in the field together anywhere, so I would appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Let me know if you're going to Baja again. That was even though you were the southern group and I was the northern group and we uh, we co-mingled for a day or two. But uh yeah, man, I, I want to do more Mexico too. And I know you guys have been doing it. So yeah, if you need another dude anytime, I love Mexico. Sounds good. Sounds good, brother. Well, I'm gonna we're gonna cut it off here and once again, thank you so much. I appreciate the you're talking. I appreciate you giving us some of your time here. So No worries at all. Thanks again, Mike. My best to you and your family and stay safe and healthy and uh, let's get vaccinated. Sounds good to me. Thanks again. And you guys stay healthy out there. We'll see you. Okay. That's it for episode 29. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a fantastic time talking with you, and I hope to see you again sometime soon, buddy. And I realized after the fact that we didn't mention Scott Waters in our segment about NAFA. Now, Scott made a lot of that effort possible by making space available on Field Herb Forum for NAFA. So thank you, Scott, wherever you are, buddy. Appreciate it. And I also want to say thanks once again to all of my awesome Patreon supporters. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, you can visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. And before I go, I want to remind everyone that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. 
And hey, you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group, and you can follow along with the show, and you can interact with me and some of our guests. And along with all of that, you can also contact me directly at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, and until we meet again, please take very good care of yourselves, and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>